This is Robert Furrow, and welcome to Truth Quest Podcast. This is our Q&A, where we, ask, we answer questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. So often, people approach the Bible trying to find defense for what they already believe instead of approaching the Scriptures to make sure we believe what the Bible says. Jesus said, blessed are those who do and who hear and do my word. And so when we want to do his word, when we want to pour in to the word of God, then we live the blessed life. So if you have a question today, then write the word question first or put a question mark or a Q in front of it so I can identify it in the comment section. And then we'll make our way through them. Reread it a couple of times. Make sure that it makes sense. The first question that we have today comes from Jari, uh, who left this on a comment in one of our YouTube um, comment sections. And Jari says, I think it is interesting that pride is mentioned last on the list. If God hates pride so much, 1 John 2.16, he could have said pride of life first, but he says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Also in Mark 7, 22, the uh, pride and foolishness are last. All right, so let's start by taking a look at those passages, first of all. So we have First John 2, 16. It says, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not, the fa- uh, is not of the Father, but of this world. Now, these three things were when Eve took the fruit, and she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. All of these things came into play, that it was good for food, that it looked good. First of all, the lust of the flesh. That's the desire for something, whether it's food or alcohol or lust, something that you want fleshly. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes is to have something that maybe belongs to something else or something beautiful that you want. You just want the lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life is that arrogance of the pride of who you are. And all three of these were told don't come from God, but they come from the Father. In fact, we're supposed to be content with what we have. And that great passage that says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, actually comes from Paul talking about being content. I've learned in every way to be content, whatever state I am in. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not about doing something great, but it's about learning to live in contentment. But Jari's correct. The pride of life is mentioned last. But did God mean for these three things to be on different levels? Is the lust of the flesh worse than the lust of the eyes? And is the lust of the eyes worse than the pride of life? Then we get into the second passage that he spoke of, and that is Mark 7, 21. For from within, out of the man's heart, out of men proceed evil thoughts, adulterous, fornication, murders, theft, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, and evil eye, blasphemy, pride, and foolishness. Now, we don't have to go through all of these to talk about what all of these are. We see it clearly, but he's right. Pride and foolishness are near the end of the list. And so is God saying in doing this, that the heart of man precedes evil thoughts and adulterous and fornications are the worst, murders and thefts and covetousness. 
if we were going to order them in rank of how bad they are, we would probably say murderers and then adulterers and then fornicators and then wicked deceit, thefts, but that's not the way that they're ordered. So does God really hate pride? And I got one more verse for us to look at here in a moment, but does God really hate pride? Pride we call the original sin because Satan said, I will be like the most high and I will rise my throne above his throne. And the temptation to Adam and Eve was that they could be like God. God knows in the day you eat it, you will be like him. And that's pride. And so pride is bad. The Bible says that God will exalt the humble, but he will bring down the prideful. And I've often said, because all of the verses that speak against pride and how God honors humility for us to become as humble as we possibly can. And when we identify pride, see it clearly and try to turn away from it because we want what comes from God. Now we've got another list, Jari, that is gonna be able to help us. And this is the six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. And it starts with a proud look. So God hates someone that walks around looking like they are something, just full of pride. And then a lying tongue. This is someone, and this is connected to pride as well. Because what is the reason that someone tells lies? Why do they start telling you that they did something they didn't do? Why do they start telling you about someone else that they did something they didn't do? Why, why lie in such a way? It's because we're, we're not happy with who we are. And so we lie about ourselves. It goes on to say, hands that shed innocent blood. This would speak to us today, mostly of the United States, which has had the most liberal laws for taking the lives of the unborn of all the world. And now that that has been brought back some, it's being made a major issue. But a lot of innocent blood has been shed. And God said, when you kill someone, you will be killed because you have taken the life of someone who is in God's image. Now, David killed someone and God forgave him. And if you are someone that has taken the life of an unborn child, then you can be forgiven and you are forgiven if you call out to God. But God hates the shedding of innocent blood. And I am surprised, kind of like Billy Graham, that our nation hasn't been judged yet. It goes on to say, a heart that devises wicked plans, another thing that God hates, feet that are swift in running to evil, I think of a lot of the riots in the summer of 2020, all the people that ran into all that evil, a false witness who speaks lies. So now someone who bears false witness, which is one of the 10 commandments as well, and one who sows discord among brethren. So in this list, again, I don't know that pride is any worse than someone who sows discord among brethren. God hates when you go in between people and make somebody hate somebody by saying they said something about you but God also hates pride. I don't think any of these lists are an order of importance, but I do think that there is a great hatred that God has for pride. And that's why he says he is against the prideful. You want a sure way to have God against you? We've talked before about curses on, on, on this channel, but if God's against you, then can there be any greater curse instead of God being on your side. And God is on the side of the humble. And so we want to make sure that we are as humble as we can possibly be. 
We want to identify sin. God, reveal to us where we are prideful. Show us what pride looks like. Help us to see it clearly when it happens to us. And then draw us close to you that we might truly humble ourselves before the living God to find out all that he has for us. So thank you very much, Jari, for leaving that question um, on one of our YouTube uh, videos. And if you think of a question that you want to have answered and you might want it as one of the first questions, then go on to our YouTube channel to any video and leave a comment, leave a question. It all gets funneled to one place where I can see it in one place and I can choose it to be a first video that we deal with here. And um, boy, what a good topic for us to consider that God really does hate pride and is against those who are prideful. So it's good to see you guys. Good to have you here. If you're joining us for the very first time, great to have you here. Uh, really uh, hope that God speaks to you during this time. If you have a question, you can write the word question or question mark or Q in front of it to help me identify it because there's a lot of chat that takes place. By the way, for those of you who are annoyed by the chat, you can shut the chat off so you don't have to watch the chat. You can just listen to the video without the chat. All right. I'm pretty sure that that's the case. Might not be the case, I guess, everywhere that it is, but I know in some places that you can do that. All right. So again, write the word question or a question mark in front of it, and we will begin looking at questions now. Make sure to reread it a couple of times to make sure it makes sense. Let's see. I don't know what happened to my the size of my letters. Okay, let's just go ahead and try to see if we can read this. Um, fact check these hands. Good to see you. Says, is outer darkness in Matthew 8, 12, 22, 13, and 25, 30, a place of unfaithful believers, as some like uh, Chuck Missler have proposed, like a really bad heavenly neighborhood full of shady Christians. Wow. Um, all right, I'm going to go in and close this. Um, I've got a. We just had an update to a couple of things, and the letters are really small, so I'm having trouble seeing it. So Chuck Missler suggested um, that there's a outer darkness in heaven. Um, boy, I'd really love to see that. I like Chuck Missler, by the way. And so I would really be surprised if, and I'm not saying he didn't uh, fact check these hands, but um, I would love to see the place where he did that because I would think heaven is not going to have any dark corners in it. And I would think that he would not say that. So I'm going to go to, first of all, to Matthew 8, 12, which is the first one that you bring up here. I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to be able to go to all of them, but let's go to a few of them here. Let's see. Um, so let's go back. I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. And we're going to go back a verse or two. Um, first of all, what is this? What's the heading here? Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And then we get to... Um, when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you. So he, he's he's marveling at the faith of the centurion, right? Um, yeah, the centurion says in verse 9, he wants uh, a servant to be healed. And he says in verse 9, For I also am a man under authority, have soldiers under me. And they, one says, Go. And the other says, He goes. And another comes. And he comes. And to my servant do this and he does that 
When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. That's important. And I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. That's the Gentiles. But the sons of the kingdom, the sons of the kingdom here are Israel, will be cast into out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So those who were born in Israel, who had a front seat to everything that was taking place, reject Jesus. And so they are rejected. Now, the Bible says one day they're all going to be saved, but Jesus is talking about this transition from Israel to the church. He's not talking about a, a dark, shady place in heaven. Maybe let's take a look at one of these other spots here. Fact check these hands. Uh, Matthew 22, 13. Let's go, let's, let's go back here again. Matthew 22, 13. And um, let's see if he's talking about in a similar way here. I'm trying to get back here just to see. So this is the parable of the wedding feast. So it's the same principle. There are people who are invited and they don't come. And so they go to the highways and byways and they invite people in. And these are the Gentiles who are coming in because those who were invited wouldn't come to the wedding feast. So let me get back to verse 22. Um, let's see if I'm, I'm right about that. Verse 22, yeah, yeah, 13, yeah, yep, yeah, 13. Okay, so it's, it's the parable of the wedding feast. So let me go ahead and put it on the screen for you here. And uh, here it says, then the king said to the servants, bind them hand and foot, take them away and cast them in the outer darkness. Now this will be people who are not found without a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in without a wedding garment? And he said, uh, he was speechless. Then he said, take his servant, bind him hand and foot, take him and cast him in an outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Again, not a shady neighborhood. This is a guy that got into heaven without a wedding garment. He was really genuinely saved. No one is going to be able to get into heaven. This is a parable, remember? And so even if someone is found in heaven and saying, he will be cast into outer darkness. So um, I would really love to know if Chuck Missler said that, fact check these hands, where he said it. Chuck Missler, of course, has gone to be with the Lord. Um, and I would really be surprised that he suggested that. I'm not saying that you don't have reason to believe that, but no, there's no bad shady neighborhoods in heaven and there's only forgiven and, and glorified. Um, there's no there's no different levels of heaven. Those are other religions that believe those things. And so I'm really surprised that Chuck Missler taught that. And I would love to be able to, to, to hear what it was so I could go listen to it and see whether or not he really meant that when he said it. All right, fact check these hands. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, I do know that at times, um, I do know at times Chuck Missler could kind of believe things that were a little strange, but I don't know if, if that far out. All right. So uh, we have a question from Andre. Would you agree there is a difference between one person praying for another and many people praying for one person? Is our Lord likely to change his answer to prayers based on numbers? All right. So thank you very much, Andre. Um, like always, your questions are always great, and that's a good question. Um, I would say, I'm going to say, I don't think numbers are the key. I don't think numbers in the Bible are ever the key. 
it's faith, it's trusting, it's believing. It's the will of God on what he wants to do. We have the man lowered on the on on his bed down before Jesus and his four friends have faith. And Jesus says the faith of your friends has healed you. We have the centurion having faith for a servant. We have the woman in uh, Tyre having faith for her daughter. And I know that there are people today who want to try to get people unified because they believe kind of like politics, the more you have in numbers, the stronger you're going to be. But standing for the truth and what is right is what really matters. And so, I mean, you know, we want to get as many people praying. We find ourselves in a situation where there's a family member, a loved one that is sick or dying. And we ask people to pray for us because we want as many prayers out there being heard. And that's a good thing to do. I don't think that's a bad thing to do. I, um, I, when, when my late wife was sick and, and, and passing away, I looked for as many prayers as I could possibly receive. I just wanted people praying for us. But I think of the prayer of Hezekiah when he turned his face to the wall and cried and God sent Elijah back and gave him 15 more years. We don't need a bunch of people praying for us for God to move. And I'm trying to think whether I could find any passage. I, 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 no passage comes to mind that would say, get as many people praying as you possibly can, and then I'm going to answer your prayer. If, if that is the case, then, um, yeah, I don't know. I, don't, I, I can't think of it. And it kind of goes against the whole idea and concept of the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. And if you guys can think of a passage that would, would say that the more people you get praying for someone, the better off you would be, then I would love to have, I would love to see that passage. Again, though, if you're going through something that is really heartfelt, I mean, that, that you're really, you're, you're heartbroken about, and you want as many people praying as you possibly can. And maybe the idea would be that you could get one who would pray with enough faith, or maybe that is fervent, uh, that has things right with God, that's praying for them. And I think sometimes people will come up and ask me to pray for things uh, after a church service because they might think that I'm closer to God than they are. And I, I'm not. We all can go boldly before the throne of God, but I'm happy to pray for someone that has a family member who's sick or has some tragedy going on in their lives, I'm happy to call out on the name of God and to pray for them. And um, I, I understand why we want people praying for us, but I don't know that I can think of any, any biblical principle that would speak about the power that there would be in numbers, in prayer, that there are so many people praying for this particular one thing that that God had to answer that prayer. All right. Thank you, uh, Andre. I appreciate that. Uh, we have a question here from Empress Kimberly. And Kimberly says, Matthew 5, 6, what is the biblical definition of meek? I was recently taught that it was getting angry, that it's, um, that it's not getting angry, that it's not standing up for yourself, it's standing up for God. Is there a balance? Uh, thank you, Kimberly, for your question. Uh, let's just go ahead and think about this a little bit. We know that Jesus is meek. 
we know that he didn't stand up for himself and that he stood up for God. Um, uh, Matthew 5, we do, we do have a verse here. Let's do this. Let me pull up my Strong's Concordance. And let's just take a look. I, I really want to get, I really want somebody to put up an app with B, BDAG on it, that um, which is a better um, lexicon of both the Old Holt and BDAG, Holt for the Old Testament, BDAG for the New Testament. Um, but this kind of can give us some help in looking at what the word meek is. And then I'll give you my understanding of what this, this Greek word is after we take a look at it. I might be able to give us some help. Um, blessed are, let's see, the meek. So it's verse five. Yep. Okay. So let me go ahead and bring this up on the screen for you. So um, this is Matthew, um, the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek. We get the word there, uh, per, para ounce, per ounce, Peraus, something like that. Apparently a primary word by implication, humble, meek. See also uh, 4235, so let's go there. And we'll look at that. Um, so this is um, used in certain parts of Gentile, humble and meek. So that gave us not very much help at all. All right, humble and meek. Uh, so my understanding of the biblical concept of being meek is strength under control. That Jesus was, was meek, but he was strong. He could have brought angels. He could have delivered himself from the cross. He could have said a word and disintegrated them, but he was meek in that he took everything, even though he could have destroyed them. So when we see someone who is tr a trained fighter, and there's a confrontation and you can see these videos and someone comes up and starts pushing them around, but they don't respond and they don't respond in a way like, you know what, buddy, you better watch it. I'll tear you apart because I'm a MMA fighter or I'm a, um, I'm a, you know, whatever trained soldier. I'm a, you know, whatever, um, in the special forces, but instead they're in the special forces. And when someone starts pushing them, they kind of just yield a little bit to them. They're like, all right, well, I don't want any, I don't want any, I don't want any trouble. All right. So let's just, let's just move on. Okay. They, they, they just kind of take care of the situation without showing a bunch of strength. And to me, that's meekness. The guy could have said, you know what? You're uppity. You're causing problems here with people. I'm going to take you out because I can. And I'm not saying that when someone is an MMA fighter, because they had an MMA fighter who rescued a woman here recently from someone's taking a purse from her. And I'm not saying that that wasn't meekness. I'm saying he was helping that lady, but I'm saying that strength under control is my understanding of meekness. And I wish, uh, Kimberly, that I had something a little bit better to base that on other than that's what my understanding is for it. Um, but that's really all that I, that I can remember. And to be honest with you, I don't remember the research that I've done. I've certainly done a lot of research on meekness. That's my understanding of it. But I don't remember what that research was to be able to give you the sources uh, for that. But I think that once you really pour into it, you're, you're going to find that it is strength under control. And so um, uh, you're recently taught that it was not getting angry. 
that could be correct. You, um, you don't allow yourself to be provoked. Love is not provoked. You don't allow yourself to be provoked. That it is not standing up for yourself. And that could be correct. Like a guy who's in the special forces could easily take a guy out, but he doesn't stand up for himself because he's meek. It's like, what's the use here? Why should I hurt this guy? Um, standing up and, um, and uh, it is standing up for God. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I don't know if I'd fit that into meekness or not. Um, is there a balance? Um, I would say it's standing up for other people rather than yourself instead of standing up for God. But I, I don't necessarily have a problem with what your teacher taught you, with, with what this particular teacher taught you. Um, I, I would understand it better as strength under control, but I could say that all of these could fit into that category of strength under control, maybe even standing up for God if it's, if it, if it's necessary to be able to stand up for him. Um, I don't know how much God wants Robert Furrow to defend God. I think it was C.S. Lewis who said, I defend God like I defend a lion. I open its cage. I let God take care of it. I defend the Bible, but another person said the same way. I don't need to defend it. It can defend itself. Um, so standing up for God, I don't, I don't try to defend him, but I certainly don't want to be ashamed of him. And I want to let people know I'm a Christian and I, I don't want to hide that. And I don't know that that is a matter of, of, of meekness. All right. So without being too critical towards what you were taught, I don't think it's that far off. All right. So Jari, you have, an, you have another question. Um, are angels perfect or do they make mistakes? Was the angel Gabriel imperfect, but once he chose not to rebel like Satan made perfect? Don't understand judging angels. Thanks. Yeah. Um, welcome to the club, Jari. I don't understand judging angels either. What does it mean that we're going to judge angels? It's got to be fallen. And the answer to are angels perfect? No, they are not. Um, are they, do they have great rebellion? No, because they're not fallen angels. If there's fallen angels, there would be a great rebellion, but they chose their sides in the great rebellion and they are on God's side. But no, I, I don't think that angels are perfect because they can rebel. And so we're, we're trying to say that fallen angels have sinned and that angels are perfect in all righteousness, that would be God. God is perfectly holy and right. And um, yeah, I can't think of, again, I can't think of anything biblical that would help me be able to make that stance. But we're, we're, asking, we're asking a question here that the Bible hasn't said anything about as far as I know. All right. So um, do angels make mistakes? Do angels believe something that's wrong? Angels are learning. They're longing to look into what was going on with us with grace. And so I'm going to say that angels are not perfect in the sense that God is perfect. They may be perfect compared to us, but they're not perfect in the sense that, um, that God is perfect. All right. That's what I think anyway. Uh, we have a question from Albert. Albert, good to see you. Albert says, uh, hello, pastor. Do you believe David failed to deal with Amnon's sin because he had no, not properly dealt with his own guilt, even though God had forgiven him? Um, so that's a good, another good question. Um, Amnon 
did this awful thing. He was really attracted to his half sister, um, was it Tamar, who was the sister of Absalom. And Absalom, it said, was beautiful from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And so Amnon pretended to be sick and told his father to send his sister in. And when his sister came in, he raped her and then kicked her out, hated her afterwards and wanted to kick her out. And she was like, do the right thing and marry me. How could I have this shame that she would be a woman who, who was not a virgin anymore in the land? And he wouldn't do it. And he kicked her out and David refused to deal with it. David's weakness in dealing with his children, I do believe is a consequence of his sin. That once David sinned, and even though we know in Psalms 51 that he made things right, he had a broken, he had a contrite heart. He said his sin was ever before him. He asked that God would not take the Holy Spirit from him and that he would teach people to follow the Lord once again. And I think all of that was done. But I also think that he checked his judgment and for whatever reason would not deal with his children the way that he needed to deal with them. That caused Absalom to kill Amnon, and he doesn't do anything about that. And then there's a rebellion in the um, in the kingdom where Absalom takes over the kingdom. And um, how connected it is to David's sin with Bathsheba and Uriah that was fulfilled, I'm not completely sure. Had that not happened with David and Bathsheba and Uriah, would David have been good at taking care of his family? This seems to be one of the weaknesses that he had. And I guess that we'll never know completely. But yeah, I, I, I think some people that have been forgiven, when someone's forgiven a great sin, they might be more likely to forgive and to want to forgive because they don't want that hypocrisy that's in their lives. And, um, but he certainly should have dealt with Amnon. Um, so we have another question uh, with um, on the same thing. Um, Albert says, is Albert same person? Albert, good to see you again. What might David's failure to deal with Amnon's sin teach us about how to properly deal with our own sin? May cripple our ability to compassionately deal with others' sins. Thank you. Yeah, I think um, I think that's just a great point, Albert. That. David was silent for a year until Nathan came and revealed his sin to him. And because we are sinners and have sinned, then we want to be merciful. But where there's an area like a king on a kingdom, there needs to be justice. Or if you're in a position of a leader and you are over people, then you have to deal right and fair. To go lenient on Amnon's sin, was to go, was to not take Tamra's side. It must have been just such a heartbreaking thing for him. We know it was a heartbreaking thing for Absalom that he wouldn't take care of this. But again, it seems like his children paid the consequences. There were consequences in his life and in his children because David was doing some things that were ungodly. You know, I have another thought here, Albert, as I, as I go through, as I mull through this in my mind. It was said that kings weren't to multiply wives. So David had somewhere between 14 and 18 wives. We've lost count. We don't really know how many. 
and now we have this family these these this family of of wives this harem with a bunch of kids that end up with this rape and rebellion and maybe it's connected more to the fact that David didn't listen to God about not multiplying wives but did what the 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 countries around them were doing which were multiplying wives when in the beginning God said um, for this reason a man and a woman shall leave their father and mother and the two shall cleave together and become one flesh so the problem of Amnon and Tamra and Absalom and some of the other children of David was more of a problem of not doing what God said had he just married um was it Michael Saul's daughter and when he was shamed by her then he shunned her and pushed her away and ended up marrying other women had he just been celibate at that point he would not have had these things happen in his life you can say well he wouldn't have had his children either but who knows who knows how God might have taken care of it had David handled it in a different way instead of making wives the same thing is true with Solomon having what was it 700 wives and concubines so he just got a great number of them and there were all kinds of problems that he had as well so I think more than being connected to his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah it was connected to the fact that he accumulated wives when the law said of the kings they shall not when you have a king they shall not accumulate wives so I think it's more connected to that than it is to David and his sin uh follow up if you want to Albert I'd love to, to answer any other thoughts that you might have along those lines all right so uh, if you have a question just write the word question out put a question in front of it a question mark in front of it and uh we will and we will um get to those questions all right so it is good to see you guys we have a giant question from Courtney who, who joins us from Facebook and they allow you to write bigger questions I'm going to bring this in I'm probably going to read it on my comment section but I'm going to bring it in so that's the question all right let me just go ahead back over here um Courtney says question does God have my life planned out for me like he does have a plan to where if I ask for guidance always that his plan will prevail for me like where I'm supposed to live does he have a husband for me a right the right job for me or does he have free will or does having free will mean that I basically live my life and God can still protect me and guide me but ultimately it's up to me to look for a husband and it's up to me to decide where I want to live with God's guidance this idea of God not having my life planned out or not uh, me being able to relax because if I'm meant to have a husband by the will of God it will happen or can I mess up and never get a husband because I'm not putting myself out there I really pray God has has the, my life planned and I can receive the things that happen for the re for that reason by God's guidance and not my own free will all right thanks Courtney I appreciate that um let me see if I can answer these uh your question touches a lot of different areas 
First of all, it touches the question of determinism or predestination. In th there are evolutionists who believe in determinism, that your DNA is set up in such a way that you will make the decisions you make and it was predetermined by what you have in your DNA. And then there are Calvinists who are determinists who believe that everything that happens has been determined by God. And I don't want to speak for their kind of determinism because I've discovered that different Calvinists believe differently about determinism. Some believe that God determines everything that happens, every single thing. That if a child is molested, if a woman is raped, God determined that to happen. And, uh, and there's other Calvinists who have said, no, I don't believe that. I believe that people are living their lives in their evil ways and doing evil things. And that what God determines is that they can't receive Christ. When they want to invite Christ into their life, they can't receive him. Now, let me say of that, first of all, that I do not believe in determinism. I believe that we have myriads of choices that are in front of us and that we can make those choices. I don't believe in it like the evolutionist believes in it, that my DNA is set a certain way and that I'm going to make decisions and then I can't change that. I don't believe in it in the way that a Calvinist who believes that everything is predetermined. I don't believe that. I believe that God, well, God gave, told, told Cain, sin crouches at the door, but do right. And if Cain wasn't able to do right, then that would be deceptive by God. And when God says, choose you this day whom you will serve, and you can't choose to follow God, that would be deceptive on God's point. I'm not saying that living ungodly, what would be determined for them would be bad. I'm saying that because God says over and over again, choose and follow me and seek me, that that would be God being deceptive. I do believe that God through his foreknowledge predestinates. And this is Romans 8, 28 and 29, Courtney. Uh, it says, whom he foreknew, he also predestined that they might be conformed into the image of his son. So there's certain things that God predestines. The Bible talks about us being chosen before the foundations of the world, that a church was chosen before the foundations of the world, and that we could choose to be a part of that church. Now, when you start getting into what husband I'm supposed to have, um, what job I'm supposed to take, a couple of passages come to mind. One of them would be in, in Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. It's such a great promise that you can put into effect as to what, what, what city you're gonna live in, what state you're gonna live in. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lord, I believe you're able to guide me. I believe you can lead me. I believe I'm gonna be in the right place that you want me to be in. I trust you with all my heart. Lean not on your own understanding. This means you don't sit back and make decisions. Well, I'm supposed to be in uh, Hawaii because it's beautiful all year round and that's where I wanna live. No, you're supposed to say, Lord, whatever you want. I'm not leaning on my own understanding. I'm trusting the Lord with my heart, lean on your understanding, and all your ways acknowledge him. That means as you're looking for where you live, you're prayerfully asking, God, help me. Where am I supposed to live? Where do you want me to be? And then you make a prayerful decision 
And that's an important key to this because you're trusting in God, leaning not in your own understanding. You're willing to go wherever God wants you to go. You make a prayerful decision. And then if you make that decision and it's wrong, God's big enough to direct your path, which is the rest of that verse. So now God can go, you, you may have, have prayed and sought God and determined that Maui was the place for you. And then God comes along and says, no, I want you in New York City. I have a plan for you there. And so God is able to direct your paths. So even though you might've made a choice to go, a prayerful choice to go to Maui, God brought you to New York City instead. Now, I believe that you have free will, but Paul said in Acts 17, it's God that put people in times and places that they would grope for him and find him. So it's God that has you, Courtney, in this time. You didn't get to choose what time you were born. You were here because God chose it. And the boundaries of your life are set up by God. And if you trust in him, he's able to bring you to that right place. The same thing is true for a husband. And your phrase should I, that I didn't put myself out there. Um, I don't have a husband because I'm not putting myself out there. Um, I don't know that I would, I, I would say that sounds more worldly to me than it sounds spiritual. I would say that there's not one man that you could marry. I know people teach this, that it's kind of that romantic kind of, there's one guy out there, you're gonna find him and then you're gonna be happy. The Bible doesn't tell you what guy to marry, but the Bible tells you what kind of man to marry and what kind of woman to be. And so you don't wanna be unequally yoked. So you want to begin to look and, and wanting to be married is not a bad thing. The Bible says if a man finds a wife, he finds a good thing. And so that's good. And it's good for you to be found by a man who really loves God and trusts God. But let him love God as much as you love God and want God and want what's right. I love that you're considering these things, Courtney, because it tells me that you want, you have that heart that you want to do what's right. And so now, once you find someone that you are equally yoked with, that loves the Lord, that meets the qualifications of what a, a good husband would be for you, then you can make a decision prayerfully. And if you make the wrong one, God's big enough to change it. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. Now, I don't believe that God has your plan, your, your life planned out. But I do believe there are certain things that are the sovereignty of God in your life. For example, I, I grew up in Albuquerque. I began, I became a Christian at 14. I, I went to Assembly of God churches, I went to a charismatic church, I went to a four-square church, which is, which is a Pentecostal church, and I ended up at Calvary Chapel in Tucson. From there, I was encouraged by Pastor Skip Heitzig to come to Tucson to start a church here in Tucson. I was given a prophecy years before I came out that I was going to start a couple, that I was gonna start a business in Albuquerque, it was gonna be successful, and that I was gonna to go to another city and start a church. Now, he may have been able to know that business I started wasn't my first business. Somebody could have told him that I'd started several businesses, I was thinking of starting another one. Somebody could have said that I wanted to be a pastor, because at that time I did, but there's no way he would know that I would go to another city and start a church. But God told me those things because God wanted me to know that was his plan for my life. That was planned out. I think there was no way without rebellion in my life that I wasn't going to end up in Tucson, Arizona. 
that's God planned it for me. As far as marrying my late wife, Lisa, and my current wife, Kathy, as I interacted and saw Kathy and was attracted to her and saw that she loved Jesus and determined I want to have a relationship with her and began to pray whether or not God would allow us to be together and that she met the qualifications of what I wanted a wife to be and what the Bible said that a wife would be, then I, then I asked her to marry me. And the same with Lisa, the same kind of things. Uh, so I also think that Romans 12 has something to speak to us here as well, Courtney. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I want to read this to you. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. So we are to present our bodies as a holy sacrifice to God. We're saying, no longer what I want, but what you want. I want to live for you. I'm not living for myself. Paul put it this way, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I that live, but it's Christ that lives in me. And then he says, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So we can be conformed to the world and be like the world, or we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind that we might prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, sacrifice ourselves to God, and having our mind renewed, we can prove God's will for Robert Furrow is good, acceptable, and perfect. I don't think these are three different kinds of wills. Like God's got a perfect man out there for you, and he's got some men that could be acceptable, and he's got some men that would be good. Some people teach this passage like that. No. Whatever God has planned for you, let's just say that God in his sovereignty had for you to be single. And you might not want that. But if that's what God has planned, that's good perfect and acceptable for you as you are transformed by the word of God, not conformed to the world, and you give your life as a living sacrifice. As you seek God and you prayerfully make a decision to marry someone and God doesn't come in and change your mind on that. Have you trusted in the Lord? Lean not on your own understanding in all of your ways acknowledge him and then he will direct your path. He's been able to direct your path. So you want to make sure you do all those things. And then God's will for you, his plan is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, Courtney, I believe in the sovereignty of God, but I don't believe that everything in my life is determined. But there are certain things that are God's sovereignty for me. And I, when I run into God's sovereignty, it can't be changed. And, and God has established things in this world he's sovereign about. There, I, I can go anywhere I want to go, but I can't go inside of a mountain with just my body. I might be able to drill in there, but I go to a mountain and go, I'm going to get inside of this mountain. I'm not going to get inside the mountain because there's physical laws that keep me out. So God's sovereignty is like that. There's just certain things that God won't allow to happen because it's not what God wants for you. But God gives us a bubble of free will for us to be able to move around in and make decisions. And then the Bible gives us directions on how to make decisions about what is good and perfect and acceptable inside of our lives. So I hope that this has been helpful. I don't want you to be stressed out. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't be stressed about where you're gonna live and who you're gonna marry. Lean not on your own understanding. So don't try to make decisions on your own. But 
uh, seek, uh, trust the Lord with all your heart, and on your understanding, in all of your ways acknowledge him. So be seeking God for who you're gonna marry, what state you're gonna live in, and God will direct your path. And so you sit back and you trust that and you believe that God is able to direct your path. And as far as what God has predestined for you, what God has determined for you, what things God has planned that won't be changed, God will make those happen. And you can sit back and trust in him. I don't believe that you should sit back and go, well, I'm just gonna wait for God to bring me a husband. No, I think you should, you could look, I don't, don't put yourself out there, all right? But you should look for a husband, look for, look around. And if God brings someone into your life that you're attracted to, that loves the Lord, then begin to pray, begin to seek God and allow God to work out those things in your life. All right, Courtney, I hope that is helpful. I, I welcome follow-up questions. I'm going to get the log from this Q&A later on. You could also come back and ask a question in another Q&A later on. If um, you have a follow-up question, Courtney, you just want some clarity in one of those. There are a lot of things in that. I hope I covered them all. All right. So um, Violet Stagg says, question, and, and good to see you, Violet Stagg. Um, God has given me a promise concerning something in my life. And I want to know if it's okay to pray for him to answer it soon. Or is that wrong? All right. Um, thank you, Violet Stagg. I appreciate that. God's given you a promise in your life. First of all, the promises that God has given you that are not out of Scripture, are of a different sort than we find within the Bible. That personal revelation. I know God has spoken to me. I know God told me things that came true. But they could be wrong. And that's why one person prophesies and everyone else judges. And so I'm glad God has, has spoken to you. And I don't know what that promise is. But I think you have to be patient. It, it's not a, a wrong to say, God, could you bring that promise into my life soon? It's not wrong to say that um, or to see God for it. I just want to put out a caution there that we have the promises in the word of God and then we have what we believe God spoke to us. And you can you can believe that by faith and you can trust and you can say, I think I heard from God. When, when I first was told about Tucson and that there was a church, a group of people here meeting that were looking for a pastor, and I was told by Skip Heitzig about it, and he said, consider going to Tucson. I believe God was gonna send me here. I believe God spoke to me that Tucson was the place I was gonna go. But then another pastor here in town, or another pastor decided to take that, those group of people, and I was told it wasn't available anymore. And a friend of mine said, well, you said God spoke to you. And I said, yeah, I do believe God spoke to you, and I believe I'm still gonna go. So it's a pretty bold statement something that's not in the word of God, but that I believe God told me. And sure enough, in a couple of weeks, Skip Heitzig came to me and said, listen, Tucson's a big town. So why don't you go there and start a church? And if they go to the right, you go to the left. If they go to, if they go to the north, you go to the south. So in other words, don't impede on what they're doing. Stay away from them. And we came and it started the church and God blessed it. And they were a church for about eight years. And then that pastor came over to our church and became a pastor on our staff. So God had his plan of the way he wanted to work it out. 
but I do believe God told me I was going to go to Tucson. And I think I heard from him, but I didn't take that as if it was the word of God. Let me give you another example. Friend of mine believed that God told him that he was going to marry a certain girl. Now this girl went to the Chowood Park Foursquare Church, which was the Foursquare Church I went to. This girl really was really good looking. All right. She was a looker. She's pretty. And she had a strong relationship with God. Everything that a godly man, this man, this, this, yeah, he's a man. We were in our early twenties. Uh, he wanted to be a pastor and he believed that God told him he was going to marry her. And then she started dating somebody else, but he believed God said he was going to marry her. And then she got engaged, but he believed God told him he's still going to marry her. And then she walked down the aisle and walking down the aisle, he believed that God was going to stop the wedding. And then they said, I do. And they were married and he was crushed because he had taken a word God that he believed God had given him and put it equal to the word of God. So I'm just giving you a bit of a, of a, of a warning there that two, two different examples. One, I know I heard from God about Tucson and God brought it to pass. How do I know God heard it from God? God brought it to pass. Even when it looked like I wasn't going to go, God brought it to pass. And so when you get that kind of a promise from God, you've got to sit back and be patient. And it's certainly not wrong to start saying to God, can you have that happen soon? Lord, I believe you told me this. Can you make that happen soon? I don't think that that's wrong, but I would say be patient because God's timing sometimes can be long, a long time, can take a long time. Think about the promises God gave Abraham and how long Abraham had to wait for those promises. All right. So good to see you, Violet Stag. As always, I hope uh, things are going really well for you. All right. So, um, so let's see. So Courtney has another question here. Let me, um, I'm, we take one question uh, per show, Courtney. Um, and I'll come back and look at this question that you've got and see if it might be something I want to answer at the beginning of another show. Or maybe you can come back on Wednesday. Well, Lord willing, have another Q&A on Wednesday. Um, and I'll come back to it if there's not another question here. But we like to one question per person so that people can write their questions. I do appreciate uh, your last question, though, very thoughtful. And I can see your heart and desire to serve and follow God. And I, I see this one's the same way. Um, but I want to give someone else a chance to go ahead and give a question. All right. And like I said, if I don't have another question here, I will come back to that. Um, or if I have time left, I'll come back to it. All right, Courtney, uh, come back. If um, we can't get to it today, we'll get to it again. But one question per person per show generally. All right. Um, I listen to your podcast and I enjoy it very much. Thank you. I'm a non-denominational Christian. The church I attend has a female pastor. Um, what insight do you have on female pastors? All right, Vivian, thank you very much for that. Um, I am a complementarian, a complementarian. So there are those who believe that there are egalitarians and complementarians. Egalitarians believe that women and men are equal and can have equal roles. Complementarians uh, believe that the woman and man complement each other, but God has different roles for them. And I, I heard a term by Mike Winger here lately that he said, Mike Winger is a, a, is a YouTube pastor and a pastor, what was pastor of a Calvary Chapel and, and became a YouTube pastor. Um, and he said that he's a soft complementarian. And I like that because I've seen people abuse this idea that women have a role and 
they misuse it greatly. I think that a lot of churches miss out on a lot of leadership authority because they don't allow women in any kind of leadership. There, we have children's directors who are women. We have women worship leaders at our church that lead people in worship. But the role of a teaching pastor and pastor is shepherd and the Bible doesn't really use that term to talk about overseers or what we today would call pastors. It does in first Peter talk about pastoring or shepherding the flock of God that's there. And so I don't know that I have a problem with a woman being called a woman's pastor or a children's pastor. We don't have that. I don't know that I would have a problem with that, but as far as a woman teaching and having authority over men and teaching in the church. I, I don't, I, women can share in church. Paul says that when a woman prophesies or speaks in church for her head to be covered, and there's there were cultural reasons for that, but he does talk about women speaking in church. But as far as teaching and having authority, I would say that that is something that the Bible would speak against. Now you're gonna see a lot of different beliefs about it. I attended a church, a charismatic church that had a woman's pastor and I attended it for a while and we left not because of the woman pastor, although I certainly had concerns even we were, I was 19 years old. I certainly had concerns, but there were other things going on in the church that I knew we just got to get out of here. It was a hyper charismatic church and there were problems with it. And so um, I would, I would say Vivian, what you should do is do some real research on this topic. And I'm really glad that Mike Winger, uh, again, um, he's got his YouTube channel, Bible Thinker. He's also got a podcast called Bible Thinker that you can listen to his teachings while you're driving. And he's in the middle of a series now on complementarianism versus egalitarianism. And it's very thorough. He's got some long studies are a couple hours long but they're so thorough that you can go in and hear the arguments of those who believe that women can be pastors and be in authority and that women can't be pastors and can't be in authority and hear exactly what they are. As I said, uh, Pastor Mike is a, was a Calvary Chapel pastor or is a Calvary Chapel pastor and now is a YouTube pastor, has a lot of YouTube content, 400,000 subscribers. Um, sometimes I'm a little jealous of the fact, in a good way, jealous, that he can just dive into a topic get all the research for a topic together, then put his video out. It's like us, you know, when we're pastoring, like I'm pastor, I'm teaching twice a week to, uh, and I'm teaching six services a week, twice a week. And I got a deadline for when that can be done. And even though I want to do more research, I got to go with it, even though there's some things about it that I haven't been able to research as much as I want to. He's able to really research it. So Vivian, look up on YouTube, Mike Winger, go to his recent videos, and go back until you can find the first one in his Women in Ministry series. And listen to them there. You're gonna get a lot of information. Uh, I, um, I don't believe that a woman should have the role of a teaching pastor. I think there's a lot of other things that women can do, but I don't believe they should have that role. And I think that you can get more information on that good information uh, from that series that Mike Winger did. He even says that he wanted to be, uh, that he wanted to be egalitarian. But 
after looking at the arguments and what the Bible says, he was not able to do that. All right. So thank you very much uh, for joining me today. Uh, we have run out of time here. I see we've got a couple other questions uh, that we are not able to get to. I guess we got one here from Justin. Um, Justin, I'm going to take a look at this question and we'll look at answering it at the beginning of another study as well as yours, Courtney. All right. Your second question that you had. And um, I really appreciate you guys. I love you. Stay close to Christ. Have a heart for the lost. Remember that part of our armor is having our feet prepared with the gospel. Put on the armor of God and trust him. In about an hour, we have a church service. It'll start at 6 p.m. online. Uh, also, if you're here in Tucson, we have two campuses. One starts at 6 and one starts at 7.15. You might look at the one that you could go to. We'd like to invite you out to that. But join us online tonight as we look at Jesus's prediction of Peter's denial. And he says, Satan is asking for you to sift you like wheat. And when you're restored, but but I've prayed for you that you wouldn't lose your faith. And when you're restored, strengthen your brethren. That, that statement right there, Satan wants to sift him like wheat and Jesus allows it or God allows it. Why would he do that? What would be the, and, 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 and what could I do that I wouldn't be sifted like wheat by Satan? How could I avoid that? And what kind of spiritual armor has God given us to be able to stand against the schemes of the enemy? Those are things that we're going to be talking about tonight in our service as we take a look at Peter's denial. Love to have you join us for that. Um, and then if you have any questions about it while you're, I'm going through it, write them down. And on Wednesday night, we'll take your questions on whether or not you have questions about the, the things that I'm covering about spiritual warfare, our protection from the devil, which Jesus definitely gave Peter some protection, failure because Peter failed, and then restoration because Peter was restored. All right, so it's been great hanging out with you guys here. Good to see you. Uh, again, love you. Stay close to Jesus. May the Lord bless you in your ministry. A shine as a light for Christ. Pray for the people around you who don't know the Lord. That's our call. We've been given the keys to the kingdom, all right? So I am out, and I will see you guys later on.